You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Last week we um, launched into Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chip started this series for us, and this morning we're going to continue. If you haven't been with us in a while, we are walking through the book of Exodus together this year as a church family, Uh, but we are taking breaks and pauses along the way. Um, And this is going to be one that we move into the summer with in the letter of Colossians. Um, If you've gone out to eat ever, you know what an appetizer is. Um, But for the sake of maybe us getting a little clarity on it, I want to read for you the actual definition of an appetizer. It is a small dish of food taken before a meal or main course to stimulate one's appetite. So you know the drill. You go to a restaurant, the waiter comes, they take your drink order, and then they have this real fancy way of of blindsiding you. Hey, can I get you started? Could I get you started with a blooming onion? Could I get you started with some mozzarella sticks? If you go to Logan's or Outback, could I get you started with some hot, fresh bread? Like, who says no to this? Or probably the best of all is if you go to Rosie's or Phil's or Buena Vista, you know what's coming. They don't even ask. They just bring you free chips and salsa. Now, they do ask you if you'd like some queso to go along with it, which, again, I don't know a human that says no to queso. Um, You're not from the same planet as me if you do. But they, they bring all this stuff to you, you know, and then in the meantime, you're supposed to be thinking about what you want to eat. Uh, I, I don't really get it. Here's the problem with this. Let me go back to the definition. It's a small dish of food, and the purpose of it is to stimulate your appetite for the meal. The problem is, is that we don't stimulate our appetites with appetizers. We destroy our appetites with appetizers. And the result of this is we very, very often miss the richness of the main course. Because, you know, by the time they bring you your enchiladas or your quesadillas or whatever, you're sitting there and you're thinking, do I really need to eat anything else? Like, I may need like a 30-hour nap already. We miss the richness of the meal. Morgan and I have started really, really liking this restaurant, Kona Grill, in Bridge Street. I don't know if you've been there. But we went one time at the beginning of the year, and I think I may have even shared this story with you for another reason, but we go, and I had like a 14-ounce steak, folks. That's a lot of meat. A 14-ounce New York strip steak, sweet potato fries. Morgan had sushi, uh, which that's another story. But she had sushi and all this other stuff. And we're going on and on and on about how amazing it is. We're like savoring every bite. We finish and we're even like thinking we could eat dessert because we're not like stuffed and bloated. And all of a sudden this light bulb went off over my head and I realized it's because at Kona Grill, they don't bring all this bread and chips and all this other stuff that you shove in your mouth and swallow before the actual food comes. So we like savored every bite of that meal. It was fabulous. This morning, I want to make sure that no one misses 
the, the main course, if you will, of Colossians chapter 1. The hope of the gospel. This is what Paul is driving everything toward, is the hope of the gospel. Uh, if somehow in and through uh, this portion of Paul's letter, we miss the hope of the gospel, then we've essentially missed the meal altogether. So I am praying that um, we would feast on it today. Join me, if you would, in Colossians chapter 1. Um, again, last week as Chip opened up this letter, um, we saw the life-changing uh, truth that we can know God, that we can be filled with the knowledge of God, His will, His wisdom. That's what allows us to even be able to sing, God, we look to you. Give me vision. Give me wisdom. We can seek spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul shares all of these things about what God has done for us in Christ. Well, this morning he's going to turn it a little bit of a corner, and now he's going to begin to speak about who Christ is. So look with me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme, above all others. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Paul begins to share with us who is Christ. Who is Christ? Well, the first thing that he says is, he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Paul connects with, with what's said there, in that it tells us in Hebrews 1, 3, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's put it in the simplest of terms. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, Chip talked about this last week. We have to remember the context of who Paul is writing to and why he's writing them. There are these people in Colossae, which, by the way, I also have discovered that kryptonite for Chip Oosley is the word Colossae. Uh, I cannot wait to see him again and us talk about the word Colossae because he has about 14 different pronunciations of it. It's fabulous. But the Gnostics were teaching this idea that, sure, Jesus was real. Um, maybe Jesus was even from God. Um, but Jesus was not the way of salvation. If you imagined a ladder here uh, on the stage, and, you know, a small ladder even is going to have like six steps or rungs. The Gnostics considered Jesus to be a step, but there were more steps. 
And the step above Jesus was this superior knowledge of knowing certain things. So here we have Paul, and he begins by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So understanding what the Gnostics were believing and teaching, it's important to know that by the word image, Paul is not saying that Jesus is like an icon or a representation or a picture or something like that. There's a word that we use, exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. What that word means is that as preachers, as people who teach the word, we are to exegete the scripture. We are only to pull out of it what it actually says. We're not to read into it what we want. Here's why I bring that up. Jesus is literally the exegesis of God. He is the literal translation of God, if you will. Paul is saying, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Look straight to Jesus. In Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us that Jesus, even though he was God, he didn't hold on to his equality with God. He, Paul says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Is Paul saying, okay, now, Jesus was God, but he wasn't God? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus humbled himself, let go of his full divinity so that he could become one of us. He became God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul doesn't stop there. In the same breath, he says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Our difficulty in understanding this is you and I hear the word firstborn and we naturally think about birth. I'm the firstborn. I was born before my brother. I'm superior, right? You said that, not me. Um, That's not what Jesus is being referred to as here. This is not what Paul is saying. The firstborn of all creation, we understand that Jesus was there at creation. Jesus wasn't created. In fact, he is creator. If you turn to the gospel of John with me for a moment, John chapter 1, we know that John is a bit of a poet, and so he writes a bit differently than Luke or Matthew or Mark. He begins his gospel by referring to Jesus as the Word of God. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then look at what he says here, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not born or created. He is the creator. And John tells us what Paul reaffirms here in Colossians. All things were made by him and through him. And Paul goes on here in Colossians and actually says, all things were not only created by him and through him. In verse 17, he tells us they were created for him. It's all about Jesus. He is at the center of it all. He holds all things together. And so Jesus is not only creator, he is sustainer. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 
I, we mentioned that a moment ago. The, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But then it goes on and it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is not like some sort of cosmic glue, if you will. He is literally the foundation, the cornerstone, the creator, the sustainer. We live in a world um, that seems to be in total chaos, out of control, erupting with disorder. Christ is order. Without him, all things would completely unravel and come apart. And while you and I have these moments and seasons and days where it sure does feel like everything is coming unglued and unraveled and out of order and chaotic and on and on, we know this, the darkness, the chaos, the disorder of this world only advances as far as Jesus temporarily allows it. That's it. He is in control. Go back with me to the Gospel of John. Back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We'll look at what he says in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot, and will not overcome it. Friends, I know that there are moments where it feels like the darkness is overcoming, but it is only advancing as far as our Lord and Savior allows it. That's it. Back to Colossians. Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. And now Paul says in verse 18... He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. He is also the builder of the church. Two very important scriptures that tie in with what Paul is saying here. First of all, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is having the encounter with his disciples where Peter makes his confession of who Christ is. But Jesus says something very, very important in those moments that all of us need to know and understand. But it could be that folks like me, pastors, we may need to remember this more than anybody. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not you. I will build my church. I will take your lives and I will bring them together. I will build my church. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says, you are the body of Christ. You are the church and each one individually, you are members of it. Why is our membership, our participation, our place in the church so vital well, friends, it's because this is not like some membership to a club. This is not like, oh, that's my position on the team. 
this is the body of Christ and we are members of it. This is why here at the brook and, and hopefully all over the place, we're a bit um, adamant about this thing called membership. We have two classes here at the brook that we call connection classes. And in one of them that we have, it's the discipleship class. We talk about what do the scriptures say? What does it look like here at the brook to walk with Christ, to be a disciple, to make disciples? But then we very, very purposely have this second class we call the membership class, where we talk about why it is so vital to be a church member and what that looks like here at the brook. And, and I get a lot of feedback at times from different people that I have conversations with, with this mentality or this attitude, kind of like, yeah, you know, the membership thing, that's not really so much for me. I just kind of like coming and, you know, doing my thing. What's funny is we won't allow ourselves to have that sort of mentality anywhere else. None of you are going to like sit down with your spouse, or your family and say, you know what, uh, let's go to the why. And you walk in, you say, hey, tell us about the why. What do you got here for us? And they show you around and it's all great. And they say, oh, and hey, look, we've got a really great membership for you. You even have a discount because of where you work. Well, you know, hey, let me ask, uh, is there any way I could get all that without really the membership thing? Nope. It's not happening. It doesn't work that way. But somehow in the church, we've gotten this mindset of like, well, I'll just come and just kind of do my thing and come in and out. That's not really the way it works. Why? Because it is so vital that you and I are saying, this is the body of the church that I am identifying with. This is the place whose spiritual authority I am placing myself under. These are the brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to hold me accountable and I'm going to do the same with them. This is the body of believers that weekly I'm going to come together with and celebrate who God is and what he's done. We are the body of Christ. Friends, yes, the hope of the world is the gospel, but God has said, here's how I'm going to convey that gospel to the lost world through my church. It's a big deal. Huge deal. So Paul, when you read here in Colossians 1, 18, 19, 20, he's making a statement about Christ, but he's also making a statement about us. About his church. So Paul says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What's the, with the firstborn thing here? Firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. Well, what Paul is saying here is, is that Jesus is the utmost. He is the supreme. He is above all others. Rhetorical question here, because I know most of you know the answer. Was Jesus the first resurrected? No. Jesus himself resurrected at least two people that we know of. He brought Jairus' daughter back from the dead. 
He stood before his friend Lazarus' grave after Lazarus had been dead for four stinky days and called Lazarus out. So what's the big deal? Jesus wasn't the first to be resurrected. You are correct, but he was the first and only to resurrect himself. That's it. And so while, you know, I got to be honest with you, I read Lazarus's story and I'm like, yes, that's amazing. Can you imagine being there and watching Jesus call Lazarus out of the grave? Can't wait to meet Lazarus one day, hoping he smells a little better uh, by then. Lazarus doesn't do anything for me. Jesus's resurrection, however, has given me life. It's a big deal. So because of this, Jesus Christ is now the resurrected king. He has brought us back to the Father. So he is creator, he is sustainer, he is also reconciler. He has brought us back to the Father. No one else could. So here's this picture that Paul is painting of Jesus. He is creator, he is sustainer. He is redeemer, reconciler, resurrected king. And now Paul turns another corner because he goes from telling us this is Christ to telling us this is us. This is who we were. This is who we are. Look with me in verse 21. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So who were we? We were once alienated. We were once hostile toward God. Friends, our minds, our bodies, our lives, um, we were not just corrupted by sin. We were dead in sin. But now, huge importance here. That's who we were, but now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are holy and blameless and above reproach before God. If you think back over the last seven days or so, is it possible that you and I, and you know, maybe some moment of one of those days, weren't in our actions or our thoughts holy? or blameless, or above reproach. Is that a possibility? I'm just going to speak for you. Yes, it's a huge possibility. Um, I know that most of you in this room got behind the wheel of a car. So right there, we probably just shot ourselves. At some moment, you and I, our actions, our thoughts, they were not holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's why we wake up every day so grateful to God that Christ has accomplished that for us. That he is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. Hey, Brian, I've paid for him. He is holy, blameless, above reproach. My cross, my resurrection, they're on his life. They've paid for him. 
Turn to Romans chapter 5 with me for a moment. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Lord, help us read this as if we'd never even heard it. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have found life. And that, friends, is the hope of of the gospel. There is no other hope. That is the hope of the good news of the gospel. It's not just interesting, um, it's mind-blowing that when you look through the New Testament, what you discover is that every single scripture, every place in the New Testament where it references reconciliation between God and man. It is always God that takes the initiative. Always. It's always him. It's important that we understand who God is and what he's done. See, think about it this way. Um, What's the last decision you know of that a dead person has made? None. And so if you and I were dead in our sin, what decision did we make at that point? We made none. But when God drew our heart, he gave us the faith to believe. He drew us and we were made alive, able to believe, to receive. Friends, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, if you read Romans chapter 5, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you see Paul saying some of the same things over and over and over again. Because the Corinthians needed to hear it, and the Colossians needed to hear it, and the Romans needed to hear it. Well, so did the Madisonians and Huntsvillians and whatever we are. Here it is. God pursues, God redeems, God reconciles. We respond. We respond. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, we respond. About a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer than that now, Morgan and I began realizing that some friends in our life were disappearing. They were not just distancing themselves from us, but they just kind of, they were gone. And we began trying to figure out 
what happened here? Like, like what did we do? Did we do something? So we began trying to call. Sent text messages. Wrote emails. Sat down, I know this is mind-blowing for a lot of us. Took a pen and paper and wrote letters. About six months ago, um, I came to the point of with the Lord saying, Lord, I've done all that I humanly know to do. I've done everything that I biblically, spiritually know to do. And so I'm going to write this one last letter. And at that point, Lord, it's in your hands. Um, And at this moment, still to this point, they have not responded. Um, I just, I will tell you this morning that I feel the grief um, welling up in me even as I'm sharing this with you. Um, But I don't share that with you this morning so you'll pity me or so you'll judge them. You don't even know them. But so maybe that you and I would understand we were separated from the Father because of our own sin. And Christ has come, and we know this because we've been written this letter. Christ has come, and he has said, there's really nothing that you can do, Brian, to be reconciled back to the Father. I did it for you. He pursued He redeemed, he reconciled. But I had to respond. You have to respond. The hope of the gospel, when we understand, think about this this morning, let's just boil this down. When we understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is the eternal creator, sustainer, that he is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. When we understand who he is and we understand what he did on our behalf, that he even came in the first place, that he laid down his life, that he died on a cross, that he rose from the dead, along with understanding who we once were, that we were enemies of God, that we were dead in our sin, but now understanding who we can be in Christ, dearly loved children of the Most High God, that is the hope of the gospel. Do you have that hope? Because if you're here this morning and you do, I'm praying that you're getting a sense with Paul here when he writes to the Colossians that he's saying, you know what? That is not a hope that you can contain. He didn't say, hey, Colossians, y'all get together and feel really great about this hope. No, he is saying it is a hope to be proclaimed. It is a hope to be invested We proclaim this hope. We live in it and through it so that in everything, 
so that in our homes, our lives, our marriages, our relationships, and yes, our church, so that in everything, Jesus Christ might be preeminent, supreme above all other things. It's all about Jesus. Always has been, always will be. That Jesus Christ might be preeminent. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.